Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Deutschland ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht das ist, Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Wasser. Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen 60 Mal Hi, it's Michelle. Hey, this is Ted. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. We are continuing our foreign policy series with its fourth installment. That is right. And this time we are talking a bit of an unplanned segment, um, not something we thought we were going to get into when we were planning this before uh, Russia decided to invade Ukraine. But a topic that a lot of people are talking about now, which is sanctions. Um, you're hearing all sorts of things. Um, what does sanctioning the central bank mean, seizing their reserves? Uh, what does SWIFT mean? What, uh, you know, why aren't there more restrictions on energy transactions? Back and forth, back and forth. All these questions, which are quite technical in nature. And it's a bit odd because you're seeing, you know, um, you're seeing just sort of everyday discourse online in a bunch of different areas you know reflect these like very highly specific decisions which is good obviously it's it's good to have people debate this kind of stuff but uh you also want to make sure that that people have uh up-to-date and accurate information about what these very very technical decisions mean i mean every, everybody got mad at people for like trying to pretend that they knew what was going on in epidemiology like two years ago um, and now I'm waiting for like all the sanctions people to be like, actually, if you don't have a PhD in sanctions, like you cannot discuss this. Yeah. Or like the idea that Biden was trying to trot out, which I'm still a little confused about is the effect will take hold in due time. Yeah. So that's the other like thing this, this kind is of, the, is the political, is the, yeah. the political dimension of this. And obviously, you know, Ukraine is there fighting Russia, um, basically just just Ukraine with with a lot of Western weapons, of course. But yeah, these these things are designed to uh, kind of provoke uh, an economic crisis over the longer term and make people hurt economically, ideally, mostly the people responsible for the invasion, but they can also affect ordinary people as well. And so yeah, you know, they're not designed, obviously, if you're, you know, fighting in house to house combat in Kharkiv or something, it doesn't really matter to you that much that like well, Russians are struggling to like get money from the ATM or like a oligarch's bank, uh, oligarch's yacht got seized or whatever. But the idea is to inflict sort of a, a longer term crisis on the country and then make Putin reconsider his decisions and sort of force them to the negotiating table, weaken their ability to wage war. And so to do this, we have uh, a great guest, actually a returning guest that is Dominic Loisda who works at Detonat Zukunft. Um, we've also had Philippa Zigoglokno come on. Um, Dominic, yeah, will be his, uh, that's his second appearance. We are so excited to have the lovely Dominic back again. Yeah, and Dominic, uh, previously we discussed, you know, the the debt break and German fiscal policy and all these, uh, all these various economic rules, which I remember we released on Halloween and made a joke that this was, uh, you know, this was real spooky stuff, German economic policy, um, potentially even more, uh, even spookier, uh, obviously the threat of doing devastating sanctions on a nuclear armed country, um, extra spooky. 
So yeah, we're going to get into all that, um, what this means politically, what this means for Ukraine, what it means that Germany has uh, adopted these measures, uh, very kind of uh, strong reversal based on its uh, earlier foreign policy. Um, Dominic's super knowledgeable about all this, and we'll get into everything on the interview. I don't think there's too much to add to to the intro. I think we can kind of focus on uh, on uh, what Dominic has to say about this and the the really um, the wealth of information on this. It's uh, it's detailed stuff. It can be a bit complex, but it is really important to know what these developments are, what they mean, what these actions that Western countries are taking mean for Russia, mean for Ukraine, mean for our own countries. Um, assuming most of these people, as we know, listen to this podcast, you know, are based in you know Germany, UK. U.S., but I know there's other people um, in, in non-Western countries as well, of course, but what it means for the global economy, what it means for the countries actually imposing the sanctions, and yeah, um, what any of this stuff is. Sanctions. Sanctions special. Coming at you. Coming at you. Um, all right, on to Dominic. Welcome, everyone, back to Spaßbremse. I am here with a returning guest. Actually, we have Dominic Leuster on again. He's of Desenat Zukunft and also a researcher at the London School of Economics. So thanks so much to Dominic for coming back on. It's good to have you. Thanks for having me back. You know, in addition to being a wealth of knowledge about German economic policies, as we had him on before, Dominic has also been commenting quite a bit on uh, sanctions recently, which, you know, for being a fairly technical and often um, pretty obscure measures in the past, they've really come into the public discourse in a big way in the last week or so. Of course, this comes as the Russian military has invaded Ukraine and NATO countries like uh, the U.S., U.K., Germany, etc. You know, they're, they're not intervening directly to assist Ukraine in the war and for obvious reasons of not wanting to start uh, World War III with nuclear weapons. But they're clearly supporting Ukraine, you know, sending weapons and imposing a huge array of sanctions on Russia. And so this latter measure, these sanctions, uh, you know, they're not obviously designed to immediately change the war. Like if you're on the receiving end of uh, Russian rockets or bombs right now, you're probably not caring too much about which banks are being sanctioned. But the idea is to cause economic pain and change Russian behavior in the long run. And, or some people have even said to try to trigger regime change in Russia if someone like takes out Putin because the economic pain is so severe, which um, we'll get into this kind of thinking and, and if that's a bit uh, a bit outlandish potentially. But this term sanctions is pretty nebulous. I mean, you've seen, you know, people talking about it a lot, but it's unclear, you know, what exactly that means. And it really incorporates a lot of different things like can sanction individuals, companies, ban exports in certain sectors, or try to cause broad based economic chaos. So in order, you know, because I think there have been these popular calls for all these sanctions without a super clear understanding of what people are talking about. I was wondering if you could just take us through some of the types of sanctions we've seen implemented and what those might mean for the Russian economy and if we can speculate maybe the political situation more generally. I think public opinion and sort of the intellectual consensus has um, somewhat changed on sanctions in the last years. And in fact, there's a recent publication by, by a good friend of mine, Nicholas Mulder, on 
um, the history of sanctions in the interwar period and, and how sanctions are very much an economic weapon and a weapon of war, in fact. And they're, they're often perceived as alternatives to war when, in fact, they're equivalent to, um, you know, they're, 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 they're acts of war themselves, but they, they tend to involve, um, you know, trade tariffs or impositions um, that cut off um, countries from the world market and that impose very large costs, usually in the local population, with the intent of um, changing policy in their country. Right. Just for one example, right, if you look at talking about if they're like an actual weapon of war, I mean, you say, compare the first Iraq war, the Gulf War, with the, the sanctions imposed on Iraq and the actual you know, the actual death toll from the sanctions, by all accounts, really exceeds that of the war itself. So, like, yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, arithmetically, they're very yeah. much uh, if they if they're not war, then they're certainly worse than war. Uh, if, if you're talking about limited wars, so the the, the 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 approximate death toll is quite hard to to gauge, given the the paucity of data from Iraq in that period is about five hundred thousand or se several hundred thousands in that ball in that ballpark, um, and that you know for a very long while was higher than the, the death toll of the war itself. Yeah. Just just to put that in context a bit of, of what the severity of, of some of these of these things can be, right? And you've seen um I think I think the probably the most notable discussion of sanctions before the Russian case was people talking about Iran and the US um, then withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal and imposing all of these sanctions, uh, reimposing, you know, what they call what they call secondary sanctions, um, which then it was interesting because the EU was on the other side of it and was opposing U.S. policy for this time. But now it looks like the EU and U.S. are are broadly synced up um, on policy towards Russia. You know, maybe with a couple differences, right? Yeah, and Iran is a cautionary uh, tale here because uh, sanctions against Iran are very far-reaching, and they actually include Iran's major exports. Oil, of course, and uh, the you know the, the motive was always will oppose so much pain that there'll be some sort of internal change at some point, and that will justify the misery imposed on 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 the Iranian populace, which has been quite extraordinary over the last years. But nothing, no such change has happened. I mean, the regime is quite entrenched, and their policy hasn't changed, and their um, their nuclear policy hasn't really changed either. Uh, so that I think that's the analogy that we have to think about in this context. But I think that the, the thinking on sanctions has changed. And I think, therefore, at the beginning of the war, which I remind you is, is four days ago, it seems much longer. Yeah, I should um, say we're recording this on uh, Monday, February yeah. 28th in the midday. Um, obviously, this is a very fast moving situation. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to say um, what the what the status might be at this time. But just so anyone listening knows where we're coming from, because by the time we get this published, there's uh, definitely the possibility that this this will seem like it's coming from a different universe with the the pace of things moving. It looks like there are some peace talks ongoing um, and the war, but the war itself is kind of escalating and uh, becoming a bit more more brutal with targets uh, targeting civilians. Was, is the the vague status as of yeah, now. and and the, the the way sanctions are being discussed and imposed is also moving at, a, at an extraordinary speed. Yes, yeah. and we started off, and the initial response was because, as you said. Any military response seems sort of off the table. Ukraine is not a NATO member, and you don't want to get into a, you know, a, a shooting war with Russia. So let's start off with targeted financial sanctions. Um, these involve, I mean, the, the, the subjects of these sanctions are uh, firms and individuals, right? So particularly in Russia, which is, um, you know, basically a kleptocracy where the power of the executive hinges on this on the support of um, 
a few dozen or a few hundreds, um, you know, wealthy entrepreneurs and businessmen who control key industries in Russia, uh, we should sanction them very heavily. And that involves restricting the business they can do or their firms can do, um, freezing their personal assets abroad, um, you know, preventing them to do, you know, to engage in certain transactions. That's where it started from uh, in, in like on Thursday and Friday. And in the weeks before this, this had been discussed, but we went very quickly from these type of targeted financial sanctions to um, essentially imposing, uh, you know, whole scale, um, uh, wholesale financial warfare that will almost that's more or less guaranteed to, to force the whole of Russia into a, a currency debt and banking crisis, while also deciding to rearm Germany and send fighter jets to Ukraine. That yeah. happened in the span yeah. of two or three days. So it's quite extraordinary. <laughs> and it went from people saying, you know, Germany is the weak link yet again. Uh, we did an episode on this with foreign policy, uh, you know, before the war broke out and this idea, you know, Germany is not helping Ukraine enough. It looked like they uh, they wouldn't publicly commit to abandoning Nord Stream 2 in the, the pipeline from Russia um, in the event of an invasion. And early on, it Germany was taking, it looked like similar kind of heat for this in a similar line of criticism, right? The idea that a lot of countries wanted to uh, remove Russian banks from SWIFT, which I want to get into of what that actually means and what that does. Um, and then there was a sort of like popular, almost like a popular movement where you were seeing, you know, uh, I was seeing change.org petitions about tell German policymakers to agree to remove Russian banks from SWIFT because Biden in his speech about the subject sort of singled out. Um, he sort of, he, he made it pretty clear what was going on. He was like, well, you know, we thought about removing the banks from SWIFT, uh, but the, there was some European opposition to it. And it turned out that looked like it was mostly France, sorry, Italy and Germany at the time. And there was this like quite, this, yeah, like pretty big mobilization around this. And a lot of people posting, you know, I saw like Instagram stories and a lot of, a lot of posts on Twitter and these petitions and then change course on this, but, but to some degree could, so could you tell us what is SWIFT and what is removing banks from that mean? Because it's pretty, it was a pretty weird experience. I mean, as someone that's, that's written a bit about sanctions before, to all of a sudden see Instagram influencers posting about a global uh, financial transactions messaging system in like their, their stories. So what, what is this stuff? What does it mean? Yeah, you can basically chart the last few days and how they, you know, you can chart the, the these different stages of escalation of the last few days um, by looking at what was Germany getting shit for um, at, at, at every given moment. Initially, it was Nord Stream 2, um, not, you know, rescinding the license um, for the, uh, um, you know, the, the, the completion of that project, which, of course, would sort of entrench um, German demand for Russian gas. And of course, then there was the, the notion that Germany had neglected its energy policy and therefore, you know, entrenched its own dependence on Russian gas over the last decade. Um, but then the, the, the SWIFT issue, um, there was a perception that, you know, German, because of this dependence on Russian gas, that German and Italian um, politicians were reluctant to uh, exclude Russian banks from from this messaging system, or at least to have have some sort of carve out for transactions that are um, that involve energy payments. Um, you know, which there's a whole question whether you can actually identify them. Eventually, they came around to uh, supporting 
uh, a band to uh, a band of Russian bands from Swift. The thing is, um, as, you, as you sort of you sort of implied this, it's not clear what this actually um, what this actually means and what it actually uh, does in the end. It's been it's been sort of um, touted as a silver bullet or the, the, this sort of scorched earth nuclear option when really uh, it is, as you say, a messaging system. It's it, in a way. You know, taking away someone's swift access is 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 analogous to um, deleting someone's like cutting off someone's access to WhatsApp in a way. It, it, swift is meant for banks to sort of communicate and being able to exchange information on certain payments so that they can go ahead. Um, and more concretely, it's actually it's not you know it's an instant it's a cooperative based in belgium so it's actually a multilateral institution and actually cutting off someone's access involves a lot of multilateral wrangling but it's not it doesn't actually prevent um banks from from engaging payments in alternative ways to, um, to, to use an analogy it might be a bit annoying right you can't text the people that are in your contact exactly. list on whatsapp but you you might have to bug them to download telegram but like you you can still communicate in some way as a, a very yeah, crude analogy yeah and, and and you know to, to take that analogy further russia has you know uh, russian authorities have, have have seen this coming they've they've been building up sort of local alternatives they've been trying to de-dollarize because we're, we're talking about crucially transactions that are denominated in dollar, right? It's the global key currency, right? Um, and they've been trying to both de-dollarize and move a lot of their transactions into dollar and to remove, to remove their, their, um, their national res their reserves in, away from dollar and into euro and, and, and yen. Um, but they've also tried to build up um, local alternatives to SWIFT. Um, one is called SBFS. Um, it's, it's most of the banks in Russia use this as a financial messaging system, but it only actually works, um, in Russia. It only works during, uh, weekdays, unlike Swift, which is 24 seven and it limits messages to a certain amount of kilobytes, I think 20. So it's, it's, it's very, um, it's very limited so far. So, so yes, what, what this means that Swift, excluding Russia from Swift can be very, very annoying it can, it can, it can impose costs in the short run, but it doesn't actually, in the end, limit um, the ability for them to um, continue with these transactions in the long run. And that's why people have been um, then have, have begun to talk about more um, the, the bigger thing, which is preventing Russia's access from the um, payment and settlement system globally, which is the which is the thing that Swift, Swift is a part of. And that's what people mean when they talk about correspondent banking. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that next, because yeah. what, what Biden and some others said at the start was like, actually, some of these targeting correspondent banking is actually a bit more severe and more punitive than the SWIFT option, which had sort of attracted more more press, I guess, and more popular attention. Because there, there was also this longstanding fear of SWIFT, of actually, if you target SWIFT, then it could lead to like a breakup of different messaging systems and is going to encourage other countries to develop their own alternatives if it seems like this is a target. I mean, again, it's it's interesting because if I remember correctly, um, Heiko Maas, the former German foreign minister in like 2018, was floating the idea of establishing a sort of parallel channel to SWIFT to try to facilitate transactions with Iran because they didn't they didn't want to be subject to these U.S. secondary sanctions. Um, 
and I mean, we, we can get into all this stuff, but you know, of, of exactly why uh, transactions in dollars are so vulnerable to, to really heavy sanctions from the U.S. But so it's but there was this fear. Both Iran and Russia, just to add to my previous point, have been trying to trade more in national currencies and to integrate their respective financial investing systems uh, um, in, into, you know, the, the broader scope of their banking transactions. Iran also has their own messaging system, of course, as you say. Yeah. And but there was a fear, I think, on the part of, of U.S. policymakers, which of, of doing exactly this, of, of fragmenting these systems too much because the U.S. enjoys a lot of control and oversight over the global financial system. And that grants the U.S. a lot of power just beyond their sort of raw economic size and their military. And they were, um, you know, pretty hesitant to do this. So it has been interesting how, how quickly this has moved. But moving on then to, to like you mentioned, um, correspondent banking, what is that and what does that do? What are the consequences? And so, so the, the, the starting point for this question is, you know, you have to, you have to acknowledge that every single um, dollar transaction in the world, uh, and indeed, you know, a lot of trade is invoiced in dollars, of course, the global wholesale money market is, is uh, very much a dollar system. And all of these transactions, they have to be um, cleared, so to say, on via the, um, the, the the Federal Reserve, of course, because in the end, um, in order to, to, to clear these transactions, you have to have an account um, with the Federal a Reserve account with the Federal Reserve. So you have to be a, a bank that is somehow in the jurisdiction of um, the United States. And of course, most of these are in the jurisdiction of, the, of New York State, and most of them therefore have. Um, they do this via the, the New York Fed. So in other words, even if it's, a, it's an Iranian company paying a Russian company and they're, they're invoicing the transaction in dollar, that transaction is cleared via, um, they'll have an Iranian bank and a, a Russian bank. Both of these banks need to have correspondent bank relationships with a bank that is, um, um, that, is that, has, that has some sort of um, subsidiary in New York, which has an account with the New York Fed then. So, so if you cut off, if you disallow um these correspondent banking relationships, none of these banks can actually settle these payments. So then no sort of, if you if this is a blanket ban, let's say all Iranian and all Russian firms, none of these firms can actually conduct business in dollar anymore. And given that that's the global key currency, it's, it's quite a draconian, I mean, that is the, the real scorched earth policy. And they did end up doing this. And um, you know, Biden announced that um, they would cut off correspondent banking relationships for key Russian banks, um, in particular, uh, Sperbank, which is, which is one of the, uh, the, you know, the main uh, Russian banks, but they would carve out um, transactions related to energy. And as far as I can tell, even in the further raft of sanctions that, that then came uh, through the European Union, that carve out for gas, at least in the European Union, remained. The question is whether, um, you know, you're not hitting Russia where it hurts, because of course it depends on, on, on hydrocarbon exports, um, hydrocarbon exports, but it, it, it doesn't mean that um, these sanctions won't have an effect either. So for instance, one of the banks that's hit is the bank through which Exxon um, in Russia happens to pay its workers um, their wages and their pensions. So that can't happen, and therefore you do hit the energy capacity in some way, even if you are carving out um, some of the 
uh, the energy transactions in this system. But yes, I mean, this correspondent banking um, thing is sort of the, the second step uh, up from SWIFT, if you like, in, in, the, in the context of this financial warfare. The next step up, and I think the most uh, mm. draconian, if you want, measure is, is are these um, central bank asset freezes. Yeah, I want to get to that because that, that was really described. Um, you've seen it described wi- widely as the sort of the, the nuclear option on the as far as sanctions go um, but just just to dwell on this energy point a bit because throughout all of these as you say there have been these you know pretty conspicuous carve outs for energy transactions that basically meaning russian oil and gas that's needed uh, especially in europe and so this is one of those things like you said you can document this for uh, for what germany has taken flack for at various points um, germany in particular right has has been criticized for not weaning itself off of dependence on Russian natural gas. I mean, this criticism goes for a lot of Central European countries. But and it, it really it really makes you look back at previous policies, whether that is um, taking a lot of nuclear power plants offline. I mean, that's been related to this crisis quite a bit. Um, people have attributed it. But my understanding is that you know, these are different things like gas is mainly used for for heating and not so much for electricity generation. So it's not exactly like a one to one replacement of nuclear and gas, but you've still seen this comparison made. I, I think the more damning criticism is under 16 years of Merkel, you never you didn't have enough investment due to these austere financial policies and, and these like the the very restrictive fiscal policy we talked about last time you were on is you haven't really been able to make a green transition and move away from gas. So how does this past these past policies how have how has that kind of affected where we are today? Yeah, I mean, this point has been overstated uh, in, in, the, in the last few days, as has the you know the efficacy of SWIFT. But yeah, the reason why Italy and Germany in particular wanted to first oppose SWIFT um, exclusions altogether and then have a carbon for gas um, or energy in general is because they are the largest ex- the largest importers of Russian gas, and indeed, the gas is primarily used for heating, and it's still February. Um, and therefore, you, you, you can't really replace that very quickly and you can't cut it off um, without imposing what is for them, I think, an unacceptable toll on, on, um, on, on their people or at least an, an unacceptable financial toll on the state. Um, and it's not clear whether they can find any substitute uh, and it's not clear whether their reserves are enough to keep them through the duration of this conflict. As you say, um, it, it's not quite true that, you know, Germany's much criticized uh, decision to exit its nuclear program and, and it recently decommissioned three of its uh, last reactors uh, recently as in around I think the end of last year. Um, it's not true that that's the reason why they can't impose harsher sanctions on Russia um, because as you say the link to gas isn't as obvious gas is used for heating and not so much for electricity generation. Um, that's where nuclear power plants come come in, of course, but it is very much about not having electrified um, heating. So, if heating were electrified, then you wouldn't need gas. Then you could re- you could rely either on your nuclear plants, which you still had, or you could rely on renewables. You could import renewables. You can even use coal um, or, um, or oil for that matter. Um, if you electrify um, uh, the heating system, which which involves very very targeted investment in um, uh, equipment at the local level. Um, it's, it's a very long, very 
um, investment intense process, which should have been started 10 years ago, frankly, but there hasn't been any really, because of course, in an austere environment, the first thing that you cut, um, whether at the municipal level or at the federal level is investment. And that's what they've very much done. I don't think there's actually, I don't think this has been discussed at the highest appropriate level in Germany. I mean, they, they do have their decarbonization goals, but, and, and, you know, in Germany, there's always a process and there's always something that, you know, as soon as you legally enshrine something, which is in this case, the national carbon, you know, carbon budget and the national emission targets, there's going to be a relentless process of forcing this down the line. Uh, but it's been quite slow and it doesn't, I think, fully account for the different steps that have to be taken at different times and where different investment has to be targeted. And I think the failure to do so in this case is exactly why they still uh, import a lot of Russian gas for this purpose and because uh, and f the reason behind their initial reluctance to to impose harsher sanctions. But as you, know, you, you alluded to at the beginning, there's been something of a... Um, a 180 in the in the German government uh, on yeah. energy and security policy. Yeah, we'll get to Schultz's speech from from yesterday, Sunday morning as well. Um, but I mean, on on this point about gas and decarbonization, he pledged two new, I believe, uh, LNG terminals that being liquefied yeah. national, uh, sorry, liquefied natural gas, uh, which I think in most cases comes primarily from fracking in the United States. So this is a, this is a boon to the, the sort of transatlantic business relations. Um, and yes, is good in terms of independence from Russian natural gas, but of course is not good in terms of decarbonization, uh, fracking being a extremely environmentally damaging process as well as of course needing to just, you know, burn the oil, burn the gas in order to, to have the heating. So, um, maybe better geopolitically from the German perspective, but from an environmental one, and it doesn't doesn't really look like the solution. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, um, you know, apart from that, I should add that they have they, they've tried to, um, in the name of energy dependence, try to um, you know ensure that these two terminals will be built. But they've also apparently been discussing. Um, I'm told that these discussions are you know not not very far ahead. Um, in the early stages, that is, uh, to actually you know, revoke the decommissioning of the recently decommissioned nuclear power plants. Obviously, we don't know where that's going to go, but it, because, of course, this has been the staple policy of the Green Party, which is part of the coalition. So there's going to be um, the, the, the political cost is going to be very high. Uh, but if that happens, that would definitely um, it would give them a new lease on life in terms of meeting their, their, their climate targets. And that would certainly offset some of the effects of then, you know, increasing LNG imports uh, from the U.S., for instance. Right, because this is um, Robert Habeck in charge of the uh, the economics ministry, which also incorporates energy and now and now climate. You know, being under green leadership. So, like you said, it would be a pretty dramatic reversal if a, if a green minister who's in charge of a lot of this stuff then reverses course on the nuclear plants. I saw some people saying like the decommissioning might be so far advanced that it would be hard to, to get them booted back up. Um, but I, you know, I'm uh, very far from an expert in any of this, so I don't I don't know the actual truthfulness of that. And it, it speaks to this like weird political situation, right? Because you have potentially the Greens reversing their point uh, they're like a long held point on nuclear you have the spd changing its defense and foreign policy just you know in a total 180 with germany rearming and now you have lindner the sort of arch 
the sort of arch hawk and of fiscal restraint now saying, oh, no, it's fine. This is all an investment in freedom so we can spend the money. And it's like, wait, this this coalition is, you know, a couple months old. And all of a sudden, every party has just done a Yeah, just total reversal on on what they came into the election saying. Um, it's uh, it's definitely a dizzying time. It gives you a total, it puts a whole different complexion on the politics of emergency in the German political system, that the constraints on German politics are not always what they seem. They're often construed in legal, in, in very legalistic terms. But if you look close, I mean, I don't think that Lindner is terribly committed, um, you know, ideologically committed to um, a balanced budget. It's just how can you frame it in a politically face-saving way or in a politically opportune way and that's why you know <laughs> renewables are the energy of freedom is, is if, if ever there was a way to pander to your constituency as a liberal politician that's the way it is and um with the greens um yeah potentially that might be a huge reversal um of their longly you know long-held policy but it again depends on how it's framed uh, particularly if you say that this decom this recommissioning as it as it were is temporary and really informed by short midterm security needs um so you could say mm, maybe you know by the end of this decade we'll decommission them again i mean it's possible it's just coordination in germany is very hard at the highest level particularly if you have a, a three-way coalition between uh, three relatively different um parties the one uh so that the foreign policy change is i think a bit more consequential uh because that has been i think um you know a doctrine of you know, German security policy for decades, first of all, not to uh, export weapons into a conflict zone um, and yeah, not to rearm significantly or, you know, and then more informally not to, you know, to, to shirk their duties when it comes to spending their share of, uh, um, of on, on, the, on their armed forces. So they always come in below 2% of GDP, which was this uh, agreement among NATO states. I should say though, um, while this is consequential, it's not true, of course, that Germany hasn't been exporting into conflict zones. They always find ways. So yeah. German arms show up absolutely everywhere. And that's, I mean, they're, they're some of the leading causes of death in war zones. It just happens to be uh, that, you know, it's not allowed to export them into one region of Mexico because of the violence there, but then they export it into the neighboring region. And of course, somehow they find their way into the, uh, the band. Syria is also full of German arms. So there's a certain amount of hypocrisy at that level. But um, it, I've likened it, uh, someone else has likened this to you know, one of these robot vacuum cleaners that sort of um, vacuums until it sort of hits a wall and then sort of suddenly has to you know, a reverse course. I think that's um, that's also one way in which you can interpret the 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 the, the sort of one eighty in, in in defense policy because you, you there were there was this path that the path dependency everyone was committed to, and you held on to that as long as possible until the costs of holding on to it um, very much exceeded the the costs of um, reversing it internally and, and and you know going through the entire motions internally. I think that's what we've seen now. So I'm not sure whether to interpret this as some sort of change of heart on their on their part, or simply uh, expediency. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, speaking here, you know, what we're referring to, of course, is, is Schultz's recent speech where he pledged uh, to to both send send weapons. I think um, both like anti tank and uh, anti aircraft 
missiles um, and um, and also to this like probably the biggest news is this one-off spending of 100 billion to like rebuild the German army and then raising it up to two percent like for context Germany spends about 50 billion a year so this is double this is like two years of existing spending in like a one-off to, to rebuild which given the SPD's like hesitance before is is a huge just I mean it's it's hard to overstate how important it is if it actually goes through um, yeah, yeah it's, it's a large sum uh, but it, with these um, Sondervermögen so these with one-off off-balance sheet uh, budgets mm-hmm. they're usually spent over several years so it's not as yeah. though uh, the 100 billion on top of the 50 billion already budgeted in uh, that they will be spent in one big um, swoop this year. It's, it's going to be incremental, but nonetheless, I think substantial, right? Along with the yeah. commitment to ramp up um, to two percent a year. Yeah, and for for the SPD, uh, quite a quite a dramatic, um, quite a dramatic reversal. So it's it's been it's been definitely interesting to see that. You know, we we talk about this a bit um, on another episode that that should be out soon. So, um, but yeah, to I guess to to get back to some of these these sanctions and these different measures. The, the last thing I want to talk about before uh, we get to the central bank issue, which I think then leads us into some of the political consequences, which is maybe the most interesting part of all this, is um, the different arrays of export bans. You've seen, I believe the US said it coordinated with some of its Asian allies who produce a lot of high-tech equipment, and they agreed to try to ban those to, to hobble Russia's ability um, yeah, to, to, to manufacture, you know, whether that's high tech weaponry or, or other things. Um, there have also been some export bans from the EU, I believe. And there was the the Italians took a lot of heat for this. It looked it, for a while, it looked like they got a carve out for luxury products like like Prada handbags and fancy shoes or whatever. Like, is, is that still the case? Because I saw some reporting going back and forth on that. No, it's not the case. Um, it's okay. a question of whether it was the case at some point. Um, it was very widely reported by people, so usually who are reliable on, on, on these issues. But then there was an official statement by the um, the, the, the palace, the, you know, the, pres- the, the, the prime minister's office, that there are no carve-outs and there never were any carve-outs. So it's hard to it's hard to know what to make of it. But um, the status quo is that they're not going to be any carve-outs. So, so no, no more Gucci bags. In, in yeah, yeah, exactly. The elite is hurting. Yeah, they have to um, get their knockoff ones from Mongolia. Where yeah. <laughs> um, so is there is there anything else that that's notable um, on as far as export bans go? Like, do you see this as as one of the more important measures here, or it, it seems to me like like a lot of this would would take its influence over over the longer term? I mean, you know, obviously relative to actually. Sending weapons—it's all relatively long term, but but it yeah, seems and, like yeah, and, and in fact, as you you know, this war has been going on for eight years now, right? It's escalated now to you know, a whole different level. This has been really much a step function in this conflict, but it started with in two thousand fourteen. Um, you know, there was a more or less conventional invasion of Ukraine, and there were sanctions in response, and some of them um, were these kind of trade sanctions. What they've done in the long term is actually. Um, you know, it's been a, a kind of sanction substitution industrialization in, in 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 a very small way in Russia domestically. That suddenly the domestic market for certain Russian goods as substitutions for uh, certain Western goods became revitalized to a certain extent. I mean, the last ten years were, I think, relatively stagnant for Russia. I mean, I think the living standards really you know, they kind of declined, um, but 
I think there's that that thing is something that a domestic economy can adapt to over um, in, in the medium term. It's these really severe financial sanctions that have a life of their own and that spin out of control very, very quickly. And that's what we're seeing today, in fact. Yes. And that gets us to this this sort of the the nuclear option here as people have called it so i mean on this on this related issue right you said you know i mean by some measures the war has been going on for four days but by a longer term you know about eight years of of kind of simmering conflict and during this time you know russia has been quite cognizant of a potential sort of economic confrontation with the west obviously so they've tried to build up their the balance sheet of their central bank right and and accumulate reserves. How has this worked? And then what does this recent policy of freezing some of their central bank assets held abroad? Like, what, what does that mean? And how severe is that? So the, the cliche is, of course, that Russia has, um, you know, a fortress central, uh, you know, external balance sheet, which means they have a very large reserves in the key currency. So in dollar, or they had at some point, they've, they've very much left um, the dollar market and, and, um, accumulated gold instead, or safe assets in other currencies, in particular euros. And these assets are used to intervene in currency markets directly, usually, and they they prevent, um, you know, usually emer- emerging market cu- uh, countries from um, getting into a run on their currency, in other words, and, and they prevent uh, them being pushed into a, um, you know, a foreign exchange crisis, really. Um, right. Just on, on a kind of like technical note, right? This means that if there's if there's a big pressure, right, if people are trying to, to sell off a currency, that would then lower the value of it. And the central bank, if it has enough other currencies, can use that to then buy their own currency to prop up the value of it yeah. is the, the so basic you, mechanism. You do there, right? yeah, open market operations. Um, you use your reserves, dollars, euros, and gold to buy up rubles in this case to reduce the, the the total supply of rubles, if you think of it in very simple supply and demand terms, if you reduce the supply, you you uh, keep the rubles price stable or increase the price uh, as you wish. You can offset any sell-offs uh, and decline in the rubles value. Um, you prop up the exchange rate, in other, in other, in other words, so you keep your, um, you can still finance imports, crucial imports that you need, um, the money that you're paid for, you know, for your exports uh, in rubles is still worth something. And more domestically um, speaking, the inflation doesn't get out of control, of course, because if the, the value of the ruble declined, that's, that has a huge effect on um, consumers as well. That's what you want to prevent with these operations, and you want to prevent ultimately a bank run, as you see people are queuing at ATMs at the moment in Russia, and that could lead to a fully-fledged banking crisis. So this is the most important thing that emerging markets have to do, is to try not to borrow in, in someone else's currency and keep very large reserves so you can stabilize your own currency in these situations. Right. And so it looked like Russia, like you said, had, had built up this sort of this cliched fortress balance sheet to uh, to do exactly this and, and defend their currency in case of a crisis. What what have Western governments done that, that really um, looks like it might have outmaneuvered out this policy of Russia? So, um, so it first of all, it looks like that Russia has been planning for this. They've really accumulated this uh, in the last 10 years, and they've moved away from dollar, expecting you know, a freezing of their dollar assets or something dollar, dollar-based sanctions, sanctions within the dollar system. Um, half, it's, hard, it's hard to tell exactly, but probably around half of these, reserve, these assets are held 
outside of Russia in other uh, in, you know formal institutions, so other central banks, particularly and you know institutions like the Bank of International Settlements in in, in Basel. Now the EU and you know, the EU first decided to freeze these assets, many of them actually at the Bundesbank, uh, as it happens, and the Bundesbank didn't actually want to say how much they had of it. Um, but and, and there's been an estimate, um, Joseph Borrell estimated that now this today, I think that about 50% of Russia's reserves have been hit by these raft of sanctions. So that's half of their their war chest, so to say, that they can no longer transfer to the Treasury so that the Treasury can make payments. Um, which of course I think implies that they can't find that, that there's a limit on the, to the extent that they can finance the war on the long term, of course. Um, and it also means that, you know, if, if they've essentially lost half of their currency reserves, then you know, the, the rubles are going to be under huge pressure. That's what we've been seeing today. Yeah. Uh, with, I mean, it went from about what, 75 to the dollar, uh, up well above 100. It seems like it's then stabilized at, a, at about 100. The reason it's check. stabilized is because there's no market. So uh, the, 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 the trades aren't happened to the extent that it could fall further, which is actually um, just a, a sign that it will um, you know, uh, fall much, much more heavily over the week. In other words, the, the spread between the, the bids and the asks in the market are, are enormously high. So we might very well see, you know, a fully fledged currency crisis in the in the days to come, especially because today I think the Fed, not the Fed, the U.S. authorities confirmed that um, they've forbidden, in the context of these sanctions, forbidden any U.S. entity, individual or firm, to do business with the Russian Central Bank. And I think the 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 EU also confirmed all central bank transactions um, with the Central Bank of Russia are, are, are frozen. And, um, you know, markets, you know, eternalized that are rushing out of the ruble. And, um, yeah, my concern, I've, I've, I've voiced this, um, you know, I, I've tried to voice this yesterday is that this sort of financial warfare has never been done before against a great power like Russia. And there's a reason, there's a reason why, um, one doesn't do that because the consequences, I think, financially and economically are quite severe, both for, Russia, and I'll get to that in a second, but also globally. I mean, what you've just done is remove a huge surplus agent, if you like, from global short-term money markets. You know, there are these, the, you know, the, the so-called petrol dollars, so they're downstream from all these oil transactions. These things are invested into dollar assets. That is taken out of the market right now. And you have, because there's a crisis, a general rush into the dollar, because it's the safest, uh, the safest uh, currency, dollar, dollar assets are the safest. So there's going to be probably another dollar crunch, a lack of dollars um, and dollar assets available in, in, in tandem with uh, a global tightening cycle that the Fed is now um, you know, basically starting. So that might influence, it, it might lead to a, a global financial uh, hiccup, if you want, or something worse. But domestically, I mean, not only are these severe sanctions, we we went from uh, from these very targeted sanctions aimed at you know Putin's um, cronies and these these key um, personalities in the Russian business scene to the most generalized sanctions you can imaginable. I right, because the yeah. the defense of this was, I mean, because it, it seemed like as as you were saying, the the awareness of what sanctions are and what they do had had risen a bit, um, and maybe were were led to see 
more as, uh, like you said, you know, the, the economic weapon, the title of, of Nicholas Mulder's book, uh, which is sitting next to my bed and I, I've been meaning to crack open recently, which I'll definitely have to do now. Um, we can link to that as well. It's supposed to be great. And, um, but, you know, there's been some more awareness about the humanitarian uh, costs of a lot of these, of, you know, if you do these broad-based sanctions, it targets the whole economy. It seems like it hasn't produced regime change, you know, in, say, Cuba or Iran. Um, you know, maybe maybe this mechanism that, that some people want to be there is, isn't really there. And so the, the argument at first was, well, we're taking on the oligarchs. We're doing these very targeted sanctions for, you know, companies and individuals that are, like, directly tied to the regime. Uh, we don't want to punish the Russian people. We want to punish the people responsible. And within the space of like 72 hours, this this just totally changed. I mean, it, it felt like all these parties like egging each other on, like, I don't know, like teenage boys or something being like, yeah, be a legend, do it. And they'll be like, oh, cancel Swift. And then they're all like one upping and then going and then it's like spirals to this very, very severe level. And like, yeah, like what what do you see as the potential consequences in, in Russia? Well, there is a logic of escalation. Adam too has called it. I mean, he, he really nailed this again when he said in his, uh, his famous newsletter that um, this is a an escalation, uh, an acceleration of the logic of escalation. In other words, you've now confronted your counterpart, your your your, uh, your enemy, so to say, with so much, so many sticks. That it's hard to see how you could, how what they can do to ramp it up in response in, in a sort of rational, you know, face-saving way. So it's 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 hard to see what the off-ramp is for for Putin. In other words, what can he do uh, that is politically expedient in this context? I should also say that um, yeah, we we've, we've very much become a, it's become very bloodthirsty very quickly and it's lost the, the the initial point, which is if you want to do something, there's no clear aim to any of these sanctions anymore, and there's no there's no clear aim and there's no criteria um, under which we would remove them again, or there's no timeline in which we would remove them again. I think that's really the the, the key point. You can support these very very um, you know extreme sanctions if you say here's the exit plan here are the conditions under which we'll exit them and here's the timeline in which we'll exit them because then we have sort of a, a rough trade-off between the consequences and the things that we're trying to bring about so like if indeed it would stop the war it would be worth um the the the, the short-term costs like, over a month perhaps that it would impose on the russian people that's one calculus you can make but it's very clear that this won't stop um russian forces from advancing in kiev frankly and it, and again it won't actually do anything about putin's power because as we said his power depends on his his sort of selectorate if you'd like of people of wealthy and powerful people around him these people are not really affected by the central bank freeze or by um, the currency crisis because their privately held assets are, are mostly abroad and they're mostly not in ruble they're in euros and dollars and pounds and you know half of um, west london where i was uh, out and about yesterday is owned by um, i'm exaggerating of course but there's a great deal of financial assets that are held in london in pounds by yeah. russian wealthy russians which are not affected so the key people are not affected it's not clear what these sanctions are about and they might lead to something very uh you know very severe for russia for the russian population which may or may not support putin and it might lead to something very dangerous down the line politically and indeed immediately the response by putin was to raise the alertness level of his nuclear arsenal which is again something you could have predicted 
even if you, I mean, you know, a sort of textbook realist politics, that's what you would do because that's the only thing that you can escalate. That's what he did. Yeah, it's, I find it pretty ironic because you've seen a lot of military analysts say, you know, well, this war is not going that well for Russia. Um, you know, pointing out to like heavy losses and, and stalemate in some areas. Again, you know, situation is very dynamic. And we don't, I don't want to imply any conclusions about the war. But what people were saying is, well, you go into this war without a clear political objective. You're kind of setting yourself up for failure because also, you know, soldiers don't know what they want to do. There's not, it's not a clear agenda, it seemed, of like what Putin wanted to do to Ukraine. So you're, you're waging a war, entering a war without a clear political goal and an exit strategy pretty time-honored uh, way to to not perform well and it's like we're doing the same in reverse with the financial war of just of just jumping in there going for it with these like more and more severe measures and like you said when does it end what do we actually want to get out of this i mean is it is it regime change in russia like i i find the idea of like widespread political destabilization in one of the most powerful nuclear states in the world and um, not exactly enticing. Oh, we can go through the scenarios, right? I mean, I'm, I'm equally terrified, but um, what, what are, you can rationalize it and say, will it end the war? And then you, you, know, you can justify it uh, in that trade-off that I mentioned, but it probably won't, right? Then will it bring about regime change? It won't, if, it, it won't via, I mean, via the, you know, the, the financial constraints of oligarchs, because it, this doesn't hit them. It might, as you said, the only way I can think of, of to justify these sanctions is, well, maybe someone knows, um, you know, of some dissent internally that then leads to Putin getting removed from power in some way, right? And then everything will, could, could potentially end very, very quickly. But beyond that, I don't think there is any um, justifiable way to justify these sanctions. And as I was trying to say, what, what off-ramp are we giving Putin at least... What offer are we giving that isn't defeating of our, so to say, the West's um, ambitions? So I don't think that there's any settlement of this issue that doesn't involve, as a baseline, uh, Ukraine remaining under Russian dominance. I don't think that's something that Putin can agree to in, uh, in this current environment. And, um, uh, you know, the, the other thing really is, um, the only thing that remains is then for 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 the West to having impose these these costs having banished the stick so to say to wait until those costs really sink in there's going to be this week and then to come with a carrot so to say and, and dangle it in front of putin's face and say we can agree to you know you withdraw your troops or whatever that, that's the only logical next step but i don't think that's going to come frankly i i don't know how yeah i don't know how level-headed people are, are actually operating at this point i mean it's uh, it's, it's a bit hack, I guess, to quote Sung Tzu, but like I saw this this quote uh, someone someone referenced, which was you know always give your enemy a golden bridge to retreat on, um, and I think like th there is some wisdom there, and as you've seen you know time and time again, it's a very like sort of standard thing you learn in you know, political science or IR classes, like this same idea of like you need to give your enemy an opportunity to to quit and save face and not yeah. just continue this. Uh, you know, accelerating cycle of escalation, as as you said, Adam Tooze called it, and I, I think it also reminds me of uh, this piece that uh, Peter Beinert um, posted a few weeks ago, before the war uh, the, the war broke out in its current form, 
And he said, you know, there's this problem of American exceptionalism and people, uh, the foreign policy establishment now kind of grew up in this unipolar moment. So this idea that Russia could have any legitimate security interests is just totally foreign to them, whereas even the very hawkish cold warriors, you know, you're sort of uh, Kissinger, Kennan, you know, so on. Um, they sort of just acknowledged, okay, well, well, Russia, you know, does does have this kind of, they have interest in their region as, as uh, do other powers. And it seems like you could sort of take, and you know, I think his thesis was probably pretty borne out. I think you could almost take this thesis and also apply it to this uh, this nuclear threat, right? Is this a lot of people in power now don't remember the sort of constant threat of nuclear annihilation during the Cold War, and they're just like, well, we're we're in the right, we're so powerful. Uh, Russia's weak and small, and we're going to isolate them. And it's like, yes, you might be able to do that. However, they have this this massive massive arsenal and this ability to escalate in a way that could very quickly get out of control. And I wish, like you said, I wish people were able to to kind of game this out a few steps in advance and say, you know, what what are we getting from this? What do we what do we really want? Um, I, I hope it's a, a peace, you know, some kind of peace negotiation, as you alluded to. Yeah, this is the idea of, of you know historicity that people are sort of influenced by their own experience in history and, and how they perceive um, history as a whole and, and current events. As you say, many of these people um, cut their teeth in the 90s um, and they don't remember nuclear, the threat of nuclear war and they don't, or they, 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 the lessons they drew from the conclusion of the Cold War was that nuclear deterrence worked and that yeah. in the end security um, protocols are in place and rational heads will prevail and nothing will really happen and therefore the logic of um, mutually assured destruction and strategic nuclear deterrence um, should, is not something that should be questioned. And I think I'm happy to be in print um, saying this, people in general have forgotten how nuclear, um, the nuclear arsenals, their existence alone is a huge threat to, um, to, 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 to humanity if you like. Um, uh, this is, uh, um, what's his name? A statistician uh, who's very active on Twitter tweeted this out today, I thought yesterday, I think that the existence of nuclear arsenals adds so many sort of negative infinities to every decision tree. In other words, there's so many decisions tree that could, that could just go by uh, lead to you know, Putin being isolated and humiliated, leading to the end of uh, humanity, essentially. It doesn't really take much. If, if, if there's so little purchase on security policy and, and how these, these decisions are made, and um, and indeed there's, there's such potential for accidents, of course, because that was the big um, scare in the 80s at some point, that um, in a way this is sort of the, 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 the silver lining of this conflict in a way that it might actually lead to some sort of um, increased awareness about nuclear arsenals and their danger and some sort of renewed impulse in um, the quest to to remove them. Yeah, I, I would definitely, I would definitely hope that's the the lesson we can draw from this because, yeah, like you said, it, it's like people look back on the Cold War and maybe specifically the '80s and they sort of like remember, well, oh, Reagan like ramped up tensions and then the Soviet Union collapsed. So the the lesson is like we need this very very strong deterrence, but. Reagan himself was like quite spooked by a few nuclear scares early in his presidency and then wanted to, you know, pursue this sort of Star Wars program of trying to trying to give 
give the country the ability to shoot down missiles and actually protect from nuclear war. So he himself, you know, I would never call Reagan a dove, but it's like he realized how severe this threat was and, and actually quite like softened his posture on nuclear confrontation quite substantially over the course of his presidency. And it seems like we, we need to we need to relearn some of those lessons in a way that the, it's, it seems like nuclear disarmament has is not on the top of the political agenda anymore. And this, I would hope the lesson of this crisis is that it needs to be, not not that we need more nuclear proliferation, as um, th there have been some reports of that in, in Europe, right, with uh, with Germany, some some chatter about Germany adopting this. Just to to close out, I guess we can wrap this up, you know, more on the, the these military moves um, in Germany and, and mm. what... Uh, what you see going on there, because I think we've I think we've covered this sort of this financial picture as well, which um, ties into the politics, and then of course back to the military. So, w w what's going on? What's going on there? Um, well, uh, so, so first of all, on Germany, it, it's not clear whether you know you, there are very easy ways in which you can spend fifty billion or hundred billion euros over a few years, especially if you look at how much money is wasted in the German military system. The question is, is there going to be, I mean, the, the, the cumulative military spending of NATO countries far outstrips Russia, Russia's spending, but it's very inefficiently decentralized and therefore this will definitely uh, renew the debate around um, a European army, um, especially I think now because um, Macron's election chances are actually quite good now, I think. Um, given how he's comported himself in the last week, so I think it's easier to be to be discussed, and maybe 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 even good for him. And he's definitely behind this, and he's going to be elected, uh, re-elected, and that that might actually help um, a central nuclear, um, a central military capacity uh, in Europe over the years. But one thing that I think has been underestimated in in the you know the extraordinary amount of disinformation uh, um, on the actual you know military um, uh, picture on the ground, which is, as you said, it's sort of implied that Russia is doing very poorly or, or that Russian forces are shambolic and that Ukraine is somehow holding them off when it's quite clear that they've actually made extraordinary advances and that they um, haven't actually, um, uh, you know, that they've actually only put forward a third of their forces. And what we tend to forget is that not, 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 only, not only do they have a quite a huge capacity, they also have, um, you know, military technologies that are quite advanced, even more advanced than that of the United States, if you look at certain missiles. And that is something that I think Germany and um, its allies in Western Europe can't just catch up on. Um, that again requires very substantial investment into research and development over um, over the years in, in, in tandem with the private sector. So it's just, it's not just a matter of spending money, it's also of developing your military um, capacity um, and committing to it politically over the long term. So it's going to be quite a while until um, they will have something to match the the, the Russian um, capacity at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it seems it seems like uh, people in the sort of European defense space now are seeing this as sort of the you know the proverbial crisis that shouldn't go to waste and the sort of the the opportunity now to to ramp up spending you know whether that's spending in, in some member states that that don't spend two percent and as well as sort of coordination on the eu level sort of fearing that there's going to be another trump or, or trump-like figure in 
the White House after 2024 and that, you know, maybe the U.S. will finally withdraw from NATO. And they're like, this is the opportunity to, to really build up um, the forces. But but as you say, like, I think, I mean, the, the, the spending, you know, throughout all of Europe, actually, it's always criticized, but it's really not that low given the size of, of the economies in Europe. I mean, as a percentage, it's not that high. But, um, you know, yeah. I've seen it. I've seen analysis and we talked about this before that, you know, Europe could fight like a defensive war. They could probably fight Russia to a rough standstill in a defensive war. It, it seems like there's sort of this this desire to project power globally. You know, uh, Ursula von der Leyen's geopolitical commission. I've seen more people calling for, you know, um, sort of ability to sustain military operations abroad like the U.S. can do. And there have been there's been some people voicing desire to, to do that for Europe, which I find to be a, a bit of an alarming possibility. I'm not sure that... Uh, I'm not sure that we need, you know, more foreign interventions given, you know, anyone who could just take a brief look at what's gone on the past few decades. There's a certain irony here, right? Because in a way, um, building a European army is, is also meant to disengage European security concerns from the US. Um, something that the US says it insists on, but that uh, it's also undermined at some point. But then again, let's say if it were simply down to, um, to, to you know, buying or building new fighter jets that can compete with Russia's fighter jets. The Europe doesn't have anything like that. It has a, it has a fifth generation jet program, which is going nowhere. So again, it would have to rely on the United States to buy these, um, these weapons and these technologies from them. So it might actually entrench that relationship a bit more in the future. Yeah. Well, uh, Northern Virginia is celebrating last night. So yeah. can I bum everyone out for a second so yeah. just to end the, the show with yeah, all, yeah, on absolutely. a very low note? That's, that's how we try to do it. There's a study that was exactly so. There's a study um, that was published a few years ago, uh, conducted at the I think, Rutgers and University of Colorado, which was um, examining the the possible consequences of a bilateral nuclear strike in this case from Pakistan and India, um, and the consequences would be. Very severe locally, of course, there might be 100 million deaths, of course, uh, in, in Pakistan and India, but there might be an equivalent amount globally, given the, the, the fallout and the debris and how it would affect um, this, you know, um, how it would lead to crop failure globally. And I think that's something people have to keep in mind when they think that nuclear war is in any way desirable, even if it's contained in one region. Yeah. Um... Like you said, uh, that's uh, might, might be the biggest spaß uh, that we've uh, we've had to, to close out with on this <laughs> podcast. But um, you know, it's it's worth definitely worth saying and, and t- trying to stress the you know the the real risks here. And you know, I, I have a hard time talking about war really in anything but banalities. But uh, it's just like, well, this is this is horrible. This is a catastrophe. I hope cooler heads prevail. Um, and I think. Uh, I think there's really not that much else to say. I mean, these these details are obviously important, but then just just avoiding these like cycles of uh, of escalation. I mean, you know, I guess it's a decent time to go go back uh, go back and watch Doctor Strange Love again or or Fail Fail Safe. It's another yeah. good good film about this. Um, these uh, uh, you know, or I even just linked to like this list of of nuclear close calls like. The, the lesson to me to be drawn from the Cold War is, holy shit, we made it through that alive. Uh, or, you know, a, a lot of us did. A lot of, of course, people in the global south did not. But humanity made it through that thing alive. We better never try it again because we might not be so lucky. Uh, I hope the people who whose perspective is, oh, that was fine that time. Let's uh, let's see how, what happens this time. I, I hope they do not uh, prevail in terms of the policies space. 
Yeah, we have to get our shit together and uh, watch Kubrick. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, Dominic Loister, thanks so much for coming back on. Really enjoyed it. Uh, thanks very much. Thank you so much to Dominic for that illuminating conversation. Always nice to have an expert on this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, really, really great to have him. Like I said, you know, a lot to digest on this topic, but it's it's very interesting to know about it and actually get some of the context and detail for what's going on. Um, so yeah, we really appreciate you tuning in. And we will be back next time. To be honest, uh, things are moving so quickly, we don't exactly know what our next episode will be, but we'll probably have something in the foreign policy realm, and we'll be back on the Patreon feed next time. So if you don't already, uh, please support. Like I said, we're, we're donating all of the money for this month to a humanitarian organization in Ukraine that donates medical supplies to people who need it. Uh, we didn't want to just sort of keep the money this time. Um, that's where the money is going now. Um, but in the future, your support is really important to keep this going and to, to keep the podcast happening. And we very much appreciate that. So if you haven't already, we would love your support over on patreon.com slash spasbremse. And the link will be in spasbremse. I can't do it. Slash, well, it's hard to say. Spasbremse. Yeah, it's weirdly hard to say. So it's a tough one. Anyway, um, yeah, that link will be uh, as always in the show notes. And again, yeah, thanks so much to Dominic for coming on. Thanks so much to everyone for listening, and we will see you shortly. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Cheers. That was your semi-weekly episode of Spaß Bremse. Thank you so much for listening. And just a reminder to please, if you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast wherever you are listening and give us a review or share with your friends too, if you feel like it. You can also follow us on Twitter at spasbremse underscore pod, where you can tweet us all your comments and complaints. That's at S-P-A-S-S-B-R-E-M-S-E underscore P-O-D. And we're also now on Patreon. So if you are able, your support over there would be greatly appreciated too. You can find us there at www.patreon.com slash If you weren't paying attention, that's totally okay. All this info is also in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and talk to you next time. Tschüss.